Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, by picking up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is is here. All right, so I am pumped up. What a great day of NBA playoff basketball. I'm going to start with the Knicks, and then I'll hit both the Lakers Suns and Clippers Mavs before we finish up. But I was getting ready to watch the Knicks attempt to tie their first round series with the Hawks. When the question was raised in the pregame broadcast about why Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett have struggled in this series so far, and the answer given was, it's a mystery. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? How many different ways can I explain this? It goes well beyond the fact that both are experiencing the playoffs for the first time, although that is an underlying influence. Both have games that aren't hard to figure out. That's at the heart of it. Both need the ball in their hands to be effective. It's easier to do that when Derrick Rose is averaging 26 minutes a game, as he did in the regular season, and not 38 minutes as he has in this series. That's not on Derrick or on Tom Thibodeau. Without Derrick playing that much and running the show, they wouldn't have been as competitive as they've been. The problem is, Julius does not know how to play off the ball. Cutting, moving, finding open spots. He has zero ability to get going that way. The only success he's had shooting against the Hawks is from beyond the arc. And that's because it's the one place he knows how to catch and shoot. Career-wise, 85% of his threes are assisted. Meaning, he's not an off-the-dribble three-point shooter. And when he does have the ball... The plan is simple. Because he's left-hand dominant, make him go right and don't foul him. Odds are he will take an off-balance shot 
leaning right. And if he misses a few of those early, as he did in Sunday's 113-96 loss, he's going to start pressing and playing faster. And that's only going to make the situation for the Knicks worse. As it did in Sunday's 113-96 loss. Going into Game 4, 14% of his two-point baskets were assisted. Which means inside the arc, he's not cutting off the ball and getting easy looks. The only way he scores is on a putback, no assist, or on a one-on-one drive or pull-up. Again, no assist. It's why the whole notion of him being an MVP candidate was so bizarre. The Knicks became dangerous when they acquired Derek, and there's a reason Tibbs is starting him in the playoffs, playing him extended minutes, and putting the ball in his hands. Because he can get his and get shots for others. Those who know how to move without the ball, that is. R.J. Barrett is the same as Randall. He's not very good moving without the ball, so the best open looks he's going to get are spotting up at the three-point line. By the way, Derek learned a very valuable lesson the last time he was in a Knicks uniform by having to play off the ball with it being put in Carmelo and Chris Stapp's hands and then team president Phil Jackson insisting that they play the triangle, which does not utilize a traditional point guard. Derek had to do a lot of the same in Minnesota, his next stop for different reasons. As an aside, all you parents and coaches with players you hope will play in high school, college, or beyond, you'd be doing them a big favor by teaching them how to impact the game without having the ball in their hands. I see it with so many AAU teams. The coach, often the father of the star player, makes sure his son or daughter is the point guard or the primary ball handler so that they get the best opportunity to show their skills. The problem is, there's only one or maybe two players who get to play that role on any team. And as those kids move up in competition, they're now fighting for one of those two spots if they can't function without the ball. Meanwhile, there are a dozen other spots for anyone who knows how to impact a game without the ball. Trust me, You're not doing them any favors by making them ball-dominant players in their early stages. I know, it looks good early, the stats look good, but can any of those players make the switch as quickly as, say, Derek did? Do they have the resources a pro with a $200 million shoe contract and all the time in the world on his hands that he has? What the struggles of Randall and Barrett first got me thinking about, though, has to do with the fact that they're both left-handed which got me to thinking about why there are so few left-handed players who are pure or textbook shooters. There have been plenty of dominant left-handed players in the NBA. Bill Russell, Tiny Archibald, Dave Cowens, and Dave Robinson, to name four. But the only ones with dead-eye jump-shooting strokes are Chris Mullen and James Harden. There's guys who have shot great percentages, but you wouldn't teach their shooting form to somebody else. If I'm missing one, feel free to hit me up and let me know. As I was thinking about this, I happened upon a piece written just last year that suggested lefties shooting a basketball actually looks more clean and pure than right-handers. I have no idea where the author came up with that idea. Most left-handers have rather funky forms. Jalen Rose comes to mind. Michael Red is another. Great shooter, but shot with his arms way above his head. Not something you'd be able to teach someone else. Thaddeus Young, Tayshawn Prince, Sam Perkins, Calbert Chaney, 
And then there's Ben Simmons and Zion Williamson who don't even attempt jumpers for the most part. Mike Conley has made himself into a solid shooter. Joe Ingles is a great three-point shooter, but his pull-up or mid-range game is pretty sparse. Isaiah Thomas, the former Celtic son and king, is as solid as Conley. Goran Dragic is streaky. Now, I have particular interest in the subject because I am left-handed and started with a pretty unorthodox form myself, largely because no one taught me a better one when I started playing. The challenge of fixing it over the years has been a labor of love and assured that I am streaky as hell. It's also why when my kids decided to be ballers, I made sure their jump shooting form was on point right from the start. Both of them are right hand dominant, although my daughter finishes well or better with her left hand, proof that some of my DNA is in there, I believe. So I went to Mullen in search of answers. Mullen's form is a thing of beauty, and I wanted to find out who first taught him to shoot and how he developed his form. Not surprisingly, he said it came early from his grade school and high school coach, Jack Alisi. First of all, that's a tip. He had one coach that he listened to rather than the multiple of coaches and trainers and specialists that kids run across now. Alisi gave him a set of five drills to practice on his own that focused on shooting in the paint with both hands, dribbling with both hands, and overall conditioning. In exchange for committing himself to those drills, he gave Mullen a key to the gym. Practicing in an empty gym and refining those skills, I believe, is a big reason why Mully's stroke is so nice. Because I can tell you firsthand, being a left-handed baller as a kid is an advantage against mostly righties. Because they're used to playing against other right-handers, first of all. Which means a little fake right and then going left is going to catch them off guard. Manu Ginobili is a classic example of someone who invariably ended up going left off of first Euro step right and then wrong footing his finish, jumping off his left and shooting with his left hand. But jump shooting before you've got your stroke solid is a challenge because a right-handed player naturally defends your shooting shoulder with their dominant hand. For a right-handed player, if you're defending it with your right hand, you got to cross your body to get there. Of course, as you move up through the levels of competition, you're going up against players who will see which hand is your dominant one when you're warming up and not give you that early edge. So then it comes down to how balanced and refined your fundamentals are. How well can you go either direction? How well can you finish with either hand in the mid-range? Randall is an example of a player so dominant and hard to stop going left that he made it all the way to the NBA playing that way. Although, keep in mind, came into the league as more of a rebounder and defender than the scorer he was this year for the Knicks. His first four years in the league, he attempted less than one three a game, and nearly half of his shots came within three feet of the basket his first five years in the league. This is year seven. The average career distance of his shots is still less than nine feet. Well over half of Barrett's shots his first two years in the league have come from within three feet. He's averaged about four threes a game his first two years in the league, but his mid-range game is virtually non-existent. All of which is why they're struggling now in their first taste of the playoffs. It's not a mystery. Their games are relatively easy to dissect and limit 
given the time to zero in on them, which teams and players in the playoffs have in a way that they don't during the regular season. For comparison, Derrick Rose's shooting distance has been more balanced than ever before in his career. Nearly a quarter of his shots come from 3 to 10 feet the last two years. He's developed a floater with either hand. He learned to be a spot-up three-point shooter in his first stint in New York. Then, the following season in Minnesota and Cleveland, 40% of his two-point buckets were assisted. To understand how little he gets set up by anyone else on the Knicks, know that the percentage of assisted twos has fallen back to the level they were in Chicago, where he was Mr. Everything. His mid-range game has been particularly on point against the Hawks in this series. I don't want to draw too clear a line between... RJ and Julius being left-handed as for the reason for their struggles in this series. But I do believe it's a contributing factor to why they have the games that they have, the overall games that they have. I assure you, they did not spend as much time as Mully did in an empty gym working on their right hands and everything else as they did on their left. Before I wrap up, I do want to touch upon why both the Lakers and Clippers find themselves in series now tied at two games all after appearing to be headed in completely different directions. The Lakers lack of depth and the normal physical impact on teams who play deeper than anyone else in winning a championship is coming to bear. We all thought that the moves that they made last summer improved them getting Dennis Schroeder for Rajon Rondo, getting Montrez Harrell for JaVale McGee, getting Marcus Saul for Dwight Howard, getting Wes Matthews for Danny Green. All of those were perceived as potential upgrades. I can only think of one that you could potentially look at that way, and that is Schroeder. And considering what playoff Rondo is at this time of year, I'm not even sure you can go in that direction. Now, everyone focused on Anthony Davis missing the second half of Game 4 with a strained right groin. That's what was reported. The injury itself doesn't surprise me. If he was playing on a sprained left knee, that's generally what occurs. You compensate, and the other side of your body gives way. I've got some first-hand experience in that, too. But an equally big element to the loss is the fact that they didn't have Contavious Caldwell Pope the entire game because of a sprained knee suffered in game three. Caldwell Pope was a all-defense first-team selection on my ballot this year, along with Dennis Schroeder. And the drop-off between Caldwell Pope and Wes Matthews, his replacement in the starting lineup, is profound, particularly with Chris Paul back in the Suns lineup and appearing to be healthy enough to hit his patented mid-range step back. Take away AD and Pope and the Lakers defense, which has been their calling card all year long, is severely compromised and they don't have nearly enough offensive power, firepower to compensate for it. This is also why you can't trust the advanced analytics completely, which suggests that KCP and Matthews are practically interchangeable as defenders. That is straight up laughable. Then again, if the offensive and defensive ratings really meant something, 
Montrez Harrell would be playing because according to basketball reference, he has the team's highest offensive rating other than Damian Jones and a defensive rating equal to LeBron and Caruso, Alex Caruso. If any of that was true, he would have played more than 20 minutes in this series and not have been a DNP coach's decision in games two and three, which were both Lakers victories. As for the Lakers dominating the Mavs to even up their series, the change was incredibly simple. Kawhi Leonard didn't choke the life out of their offensive flow, trying to decide what he wanted to do, and became equally active and decisive at the defensive end. Sliding over to block Luka Doncic's shot after he turned the corner on Reggie Jackson early in Game 4 was stunning in that it's the best help defense I've seen from Kawhi this series. Everybody touching the ball, everybody being involved, everybody getting shots inspired everyone to play harder on defense. In Game 1, Kawhi and Paul George took nearly half of the Clippers' 84 shots. In Game 2, they took more than half. Those were both losses. Game 3, they only took 45%. Earlier tonight, in Game 4, they only took 40% of the shots. It's not complicated. The Clippers have one-on-one advantages galore against the Mavs, particularly with PG and Kawhi. But taking turns to go one-on-one isn't the way to exploit them. It means that one-on-one is actually going against a set defense, and the Mavs could help with impunity knowing the ball wasn't going to move. It's also no accident that the Clippers have won both games since starting Jackson and essentially taking Patrick Beverly out of the rotation. We'll see where these series go going forward. But honestly, Lakers are in deep trouble without AD and KCP. And if the Clippers continue to move the ball, then I don't see an answer for the Mavs in winning the series either, particularly with Luka Doncic obviously compromised because of the issues that he's having with his neck or his back or shoulder, whatever it might be. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those of you who have been doing it. It's been a steady stream, and I truly appreciate it, as do my sponsors. We've got two playoff games Monday night, but in actuality, we really only have one. Philadelphia at Washington, foregone conclusion. Utah at Memphis, considering how the Grizzlies continued to fight to the end against the Jazz, I believe that series still has a chance to be interesting. Certainly worth watching Game 4 to find out. And then we're back to the quality slate. No, not Boston at Brooklyn on Tuesday. But Blazers at Nuggets and certainly the Lakers at Suns. This has been a pretty good first round. And I hope you feel that the podcast has been pretty good at telling you all about it. Is that me fishing for compliments? Maybe. No, not really. I'm just enjoying the opportunity to break all this down for you. And in the meantime, till next episode, as always, thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.